Health and Fitness with David Hollywood. Finland's 103. Hello and welcome to this week's Health and Fitness with me, David Hollywood. Coming up in the show, we're talking sleep, specifically newborn baby sleep and newborn baby's parents' sleep. I've brought a bit of expertise to this week's programme, so hang tight for this one. When's the last time you've been for an NCT? We're not talking cars, we're talking health screening and the preventative measures we can take to future-proof our health. And we catch up with the Midlands Boxing Club that's producing national, European and world champions. Now on Health and Fitness, we're turning our attention to a story and an issue that I think that so many of our listeners can relate to. If you've not been through it, you know somebody who has... If you don't know someone as a friend who's been through it, I can tell you that your parents have been through it. uh, And that is finding a way to uh, live your life and support a newborn baby when a newborn comes into your world, into your home and into your life. It can be a tumultuous experience. And one thing's for certain, it can leave nine tenths of us absolutely uh, knocked for six in a lot of respects. So much of this is centred around the question of sleep. And there is so much focus on a baby getting sleep and the techniques behind it. What worked for your forebearers in your family? What worked for the people in the book? uh, What worked for the people on television? Uh, Ultimately, though, uh, it's usually cancelled that it's got to work for you as well. It's just harder uh, said, uh, harder done than said in that regard. But what about your own sleep? I think this is probably something that gets glossed over a lot is uh, managing the lack of sleep that we all will have when a newborn comes into the home. I'm very glad to introduce uh, two people who will bring a degree of expertise uh, on the issue. Uh, firstly, uh, Dr. Emma Bagnell, who's a, a registered senior clinical psychologist, an holistic sleep coach and a mother of two as well. Emma, thanks so much for talking to us on Health and Fitness this evening. Thanks for having me, David. Not at all. And also on with us this evening is uh, Professor Elk Hufash, a consultant neonatologist and paediatrician at the Rotunda Hospital in Dublin and a full professor of paediatrics at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. Um, Afif, thank you as well for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. Emma, I'm going to turn to yourself uh, first because it, it, it's an area of specialisation for you particularly. Um, the question of sleep, and we're going to get on to so much of the issues around sleep regarding the, the baby and the parents, but let's talk about everybody first and foremost. How important is it for us to sleep well? So sleep is one of the most important functions of our bodies that we don't really think about because for us, We do nothing to sleep is how we see it. Our body shut down. But we know that when we go to sleep, it's really important not just to um, get our energy reserves back online, but also for uh, repairing our body and this kind of homeostasis of getting everything back on track to where it should be. And when we look at babies and children, we know that sleep is particularly important. There's a reason why babies sleep so much and why young children sleep so much at night. And that's because It's again about their energy reserves, but it's also about the maturation of their body. It's about consolidating their memories and their learning of what they have learned during that day and bring it all together. So it allows for that kind of ongoing wiring of the brain. And it's so important because our body needs to shut down in a way for us to be able to do that and forget about all the other functions that our body is doing during the day. It's a biological quirk then, isn't it, that whilst sleep is so important and because we understand that we place great priority on the infant sleep 
but our lives then become so much more difficult to navigate, uh, regardless of the sleep factor, just because of the practical obligations of raising a, a newborn child. And none of us are getting the requisite amount of sleep either. So we're probably feeling really deficient as parents of newborns. Absolutely. And I haven't long out of that very early stage of, of babies constantly waking during the night. And I still am to some extent. And I think we can not realise just how much of an impact that has for you as a parent when you're sleep deprived, when even to have the energy to do things, to look after baby, to keep up relationships and friendships, to manage everything in the home. And then on top of that, manage the mental load of being a parent and all that goes with that. It's it's very, very hard to function at all if we don't sleep. Like there's a reason why it's used as a tool of torture. <laughs> torture, it, I suppose, can be apt in some respects when it comes to uh, ch- the challenges that are, that are involved. Afif, I'll just come to you on, on this one specifically. It, it, it is what we understand about sleep is so important and the world is very much geared towards uh, leveraging us emotionally to want to do the best for our children and quite rightly in a lot of respects. Uh, but children, you know, they don't uh, they don't follow the instructions of a book individually. They're bespoke individuals. And it, it probably helps to have our head around the fact that your child won't chime with your neighbor's child, your friend's child or the ideal child in, in, in the how to book. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there, David. Um, there's a lot of recent data demonstrating that baby sleeping patterns vary widely. Um, and we know that especially over the first few months um, following delivery, babies can sleep for as little as eight hours a day to as much as 16, 17, 18 hours a day. And that's a total in 24 hours. And if you look at sleeping episodes, they themselves can actually vary hugely from, you know, sometimes as little as half an hour to one hour to as long as four to five hours. And that variability can happen, not even um, from baby to baby, but within babies themselves from day to day. And a big reason for that is that babies, especially in the first few months of life, are only beginning to learn how to self-regulate, how to self-soothe and how to fall asleep themselves. Unfortunately, as as you said, the books and society don't really um, you know, know that as as such. And there's the societal expectations that babies can be regimented into a routine very, very early on. And then you have people then or parents when babies don't fit the mold and don't follow the book, then they feel that there is something wrong or that, that they are doing something wrong. And you have a lot of people that pathologize this normal behavior and then offer parents, you know, courses, quick fixes to try and fix a natural physiological process, which is nearly impossible to do. Instead, what we should do, and Emma has has um, alluded to, is to actually empower parents, with, number one, with the knowledge of this, and number two, with tools to help them cope with this very, and let's admit it, a very challenging and difficult time over the first few months following delivery. It's just remarkable, Afif, what you said there about the size of the window of hours that uh, babies would sleep between 8 and 16 uh, that's a, a huge variance and even just that puts it into context uh, how different things can be and therefore how different people's experiences can feel when they're relating to each other 
Yeah, absolutely. And also uh, a big important piece that actually um, Emma spoke about in our latest episode of the Baby Tribe podcast is the perception of parents as to what constitutes a good night's sleep. Some parents, for example, will call a two to three hour straight stretch of sleep as my baby slept all night. Other parents may, ex you know, accept an all night sleep as five or six hours. So when you hear parents saying, oh, my baby slept all night, you really have to kind of drill in and find out, well, what did that what does that actually mean to you? What does a full night's sleep mean to you? Because a lot of the time, once you actually dig into to what really happened, you will find that the baby may have fussed after two to three hours, was given a quick feed and then went back to sleep again. Other parents may not be, you know, into that, um, you know, into that approach. And then if they don't respond to the baby's you know, fussiness or staring, the baby may wake up and lose that sleep cycle. And then you're into another um, uh, approach to try and institute another sleep cycle for the baby. And again, it varies from, from parent to parent. It varies from baby to baby. Even how you respond to a baby's sleep cycle can, can vary from, from family to family. There's a lot of bespoke factors, Emma, that Afif is talking about there. And I suppose by the sounds of it, whilst there's a place for the supportive, uh, collective socialising we do as parents. Uh, there's also a need then uh, to mindfully develop a bespoke approach for your child and for your family particularly, what works in your home for the for the family that you might have, be it two up, two down, a blended house, whatever it is. Everyone does have those differences that ultimately will inform people's passion of rest and, and rising. Absolutely. And even to, I suppose, follow on from what Hafifa said there about, you know, this wide range of how many hours a baby will sleep in a day or in a night. Um, a lot of the books out there are prescriptive and they'll say that your baby has to sleep X number of hours in a day. And we actually know now from the research that each baby and each child has their own unique needs when it comes to sleep. And they may need, say, 12 hours in 24 hours, or they may need 16 hours in 24 hours. But whatever their individual need is, that is the amount of sleep that they need across 24 hours. And you can't make them sleep more, despite what the literature or what people would put out there in social media. It doesn't match up what the literature is telling us. And, you know, I like to think of it as a baby doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, they exist within a family, within a home um, within varying levels of support. And, you know, families look very different. You could have single parents. You could have parents where, you know, one of them may be working away from home. And it's not always realistic to take these prescriptive approaches that say you need to, you know, go into the room and put your baby down and then go in and out every time they cry. There could be other children at home to, to look after and to navigate all of that. Parents have their own responsibilities and things that they need to do. And also the biggest thing is that there seems this focus on forcing babies to become independent before they're ready to, because we know that getting our babies to sleep, it is hard work. It's very normal for them to wake, but it is hard and that's okay. But it's always portrayed as being a really negative thing when babies don't sleep, even though it's normal. And the solution that seems to be put out there is to remove the parent as much as possible and make the child independent. And actually, we know from the research that the complete opposite is true. So the more responsive we are to our babies, the more that we are there to reassure them, comfort them and soothe them to sleep. 
as they mature and as their sleep cycles mature, they develop this very positive experience around sleep and feeling safe. And they rely on us more as they get older. And that's kind of going against what that message is that's out there, you know, that, oh, if you if you keep going to your baby every time they cry or if you co-sleep with them or if you hold them to sleep, then you're creating this rod for your back and you're never going to be able to get away from it. It's kind of that fear mongering, like thinking 10 years ahead. And sometimes it's really important to say, OK, right now, what is the biggest difficulty for you and what can we do to support you with that rather than pathologizing the baby and saying that there's something wrong with their sleep? We just need to support parents around sleep. Fascinating stuff. You're listening to Dr. Emma Bagnell and uh, Dr. Afif El-Kafash. And we are talking about sleep, both for baby and for parent. When we return on Health and Fitness, we'll continue exploring some of the solutions to this age old question. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood. You're very welcome back to the programme. Um, I am joined by Dr. Afif El-Kufash and uh, Dr. Emma Bagnell. We are talking about sleep for parents and for babies. And Emma, just before the break, uh, you were talking to us about this dynamic. And uh, I have an eight-year-old, so it's a while ago, but we did go through this. I came from a household where uh, the idea was that you couldn't mollycoddle children, otherwise you'd be creating issues for yourself. And you described it exactly as that. And I learned before my own eyes personally that what you were discussing about actually works so much better, which is being a responsive parent and paying attention. It can kind of be mind blowing to have these uh, structures in your own mind uh, blown away. But as time goes on, I suppose uh, (laughs) modern like the way we advance so many things come under the microscope and you do have to try to be open minded. Absolutely. And I think historically a more behavioral approach would have been taken to sleep and there was this belief that um, like you say if we molly call them they'll always need us so if we leave them to cry they will become more resilient and they will learn to self-soothe but in more recent years we've really delved into that more and we know that it's far more complex and we know now that actually babies aren't born with the ability to self-soothe and regulate themselves. They cannot do that because their brain has not matured to allow them to do that. And that is something that happens as they grow. And most importantly, it's something that happens alongside the support of their primary caregiver or their parent or whoever's involved in their care. Um, And when you really look at, I know, you suppose, leaving babies to cry, the tricky part was that for some parents, they would leave their baby to cry and eventually their baby would sleep. But now when we delve into that more, we know that what has happened there is not actually that the baby has learned to self-soothe. What has happened is usually one of two things, that either they have learned that crying as a means of communicating their need in that moment is not serving its purpose because nobody is coming to give them that reassurance and comfort that they're looking for. So they stop doing it. It makes sense. You know, you're not going to keep communicating in a way that's not working for you. Mm. And the other piece as well is that for a lot of babies, they actually start to shut down because physically they can only cry for so long and their energy reserves will run out and they will fall asleep. But for me as a holistic sleep coach, I would look at, you know, well, what kind of quality of sleep are they going to have then? If you go into sleep in a distressed state, that's very different to going into sleep in a more relaxed state, which would be far more restorative. And remember, we want sleep to support the baby's development, to help the consolidation of their memories and what they're learning during the day. That's what we want. We don't want them just sleeping 
for survival so they can get ready to fight again when they wake up. That's not the purpose of sleep. It's about developing their relationship with sleep as well, because talk about creating a rod for your own back. If, if, if this child grows up with such a negative experience at such a formative time, there will be consequences. Absolutely. Do you know, and I suppose often parents would say to me that, you know, when they look back, um, it's only down the line they see that their child, not always, some children, you know, they, they take to it and it's fine. But for some children, you know, they might notice that they get a little bit worried if their parents ever have to leave them or they might describe them as maybe a child to be tend to be more anxious in different situations. But equally, again, this is the whole thing why we need to take a bespoke approach with some children. You know, they do manage fine and that's just down to their temperament, it's down to their personality. It's not just that the one size approach will fit all. Um, but certainly from my perspective as a holistic sleep coach and definitely also as a psychologist, I would err on the side of support and respond, reassure and meet their needs. And it will make them more independent as they grow. Afif, as you listen to Emma there speaking about th- that dynamic specifically in your work as a paediatrician at the Rotunda Hospital, um, you must come across a great deal of mothers and there's probably this pervasive and apparent uh massive ownership of responsibility people want to do best by their child um, it, I can imagine that this kind of messaging if we could get it across to everybody it would be really effective in maybe deleveraging the pressure and the stress around the idea of sleep and supporting your child Absolutely and my experience is that once you actually explain what we have been talking about to parents you get a sense that they feel liberated, that they feel relieved that there is no pressure now to actually impose a regiment on their baby early on. You often feel, you often hear mothers, um, you know, being told that, you know, you need to put your baby down. You're spoiling your baby. You can't breastfeed your baby to sleep. Oh, why don't you give your baby a bottle at night? Because they'll, they'll end up sleeping better. And when you debunk all of these myths, you actually feel the sense of relief on the mothers because their instinct is to actually be responsive to their baby's needs and keep the baby close to them and cuddle their babies and provide a reassuring and comforting environment for them to sleep. And once you actually explain that, I mean, most of the parents that I come across don't want to impose, you know, a routine on their babies. They feel that they have to because society expects them to. And a big part, um, the onus is on us then to actually try and debunk all of those myths to empower the parents with that knowledge that they are doing the right thing by being responsive. On the ground, Afif, how effectively are we debunking these particular myths? Uh, just how much work needs to be done to further that message? We we have a huge way to go still. Um, the problem is that most parents and most families now, and in fact, people in general, consume um, uh, obtain their knowledge and information from social media. Very few people end up you know, trying to referring to websites, references, reading. People don't read anymore. And that's not a criticism. That's just the reality. I'm including myself in that. And people consume a lot of their information and knowledge from social media. And there still is a huge presence of misinformation on a lot of those platforms. And I think a lot of it comes from, um, you know, sometimes, you know, self-prescribed experts or people that are trying to sell you a quick fix product to try and help improve a normal physiological process and whatnot. And unfortunately, up until recently, a lot of healthcare providers are shying away from being present on social media to try and debunk these issues. They don't want to put themselves out there because there could be a lot of criticism. But I think the onus is on us to 
have a social media presence to try and spread evidence-based information to parents um, to try and empower them with that knowledge. And that's one of the reasons why um, I started the Baby Tribe podcast is to um, empower parents with the knowledge, provide the knowledge in, you know, small um, bite-sized chunks, if you like, um, you know, exploring a lot of things. And the episode we recently did with um, Emma has really resonated with a lot of parents. The amount of positive feedback we got um, purely from the fact that we just, you know, spoke about what is normal and spoke about the need to empower parents with the tools to deal with the difficult but normal um, physiological variation that babies experience in terms of sleep. So we need to do more of that to try and help, you know, spread the word and the knowledge. Yeah. I think you're dead right. And if it weren't for that episode of the Baby Tribe podcast, our health and fitness listeners on Midlands 103 um, might not be hearing this conversation uh, this evening. Emma, we've been talking about the things we can do. Uh, the the We've been talking about a certain approach to sleep um, that can be a lot less structured and more, more bespoke. But no matter how well all of that goes, as adults, as parents, we're going to end up deprived of sleep over the course of uh, the first initial few weeks or however long that is the case when you're bleary eyed and the you 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 hear uh, the the cry in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning and you just think i don't know how much of more of this i've got in the tank how do we, what do we do to navigate that because the rest of the world doesn't stop you've got work you've got the rest of your family you you're supposed to uh, the world tells you you should be putting out a social face with your newborn baby as well there's a whole lot that goes on and uh, parents have to navigate it semi-conscious a lot of the time yeah and i think it can be a tricky one to navigate sometimes but i suppose if there's somebody else at home who's available as a support right as a partner or a husband or a wife um really looking at how you can involve them can really be a big one, especially for breastfeeding mothers. They can feel sometimes that because they're the one feeding the baby, they need to deal with all the night wakings. Um, and I suppose this pressure of, you know, sleep when baby sleeps, I don't know anybody who can follow that advice because of my baby sleep during the day, I'm trying to get things done. So it's trying to, I suppose, work with the hand that you're dealt. So we know that the baby is going to wake during the night, but how can you manage that? So sometimes it could be a case that, Maybe the mum would feed the baby early in the night if she's breastfeeding and then she might get asleep then. And then their partner may stay up with the baby and settle them and just wake them for when there's a feed. And they might deal with the, the winding and the changing of the baby so the mother gets to sleep. If the baby is bottle fed or if they're combination fed, sometimes it's possible then to share that feeding um, with the partner. The other piece, I suppose, as well, though, is that, you know, in reality, some families at the moment, there may be a single parent or there could be a parent who's working nights or a parent um, who, you know, just isn't available at the time that we're try- trying to put babies down for bed. And one of the things that I would say to parents is just do what you can do in the moment and don't stress about what the books are saying that you should or you shouldn't do. If your baby is really struggling to settle and you know that they just need to be held to sleep that night, that's okay. If that's what's working for you, then do it. And if you're standing there going, oh, but I need to go downstairs and I need to put on the dishwasher and I need to put on the washing, those things don't matter. Nobody cares about that. Just try and focus in the here and now and what you can do. Um, and don't worry about, you know, oh, I have to do this because the book says I have to do this. So 
if you've got the assistance at home, teamwork can be a huge help. And probably one of the things there is just accepting that you will be tired and you can't be fresh and to embrace the reality of that going forward probably uh, <laughs> helps with uh, processing the tiredness as the days and the weeks go by. Absolutely. And just being kind to yourself and remembering that you are doing your best and this is hard, you know, because I think your face at messages that you're doing something wrong and it's your fault that your baby isn't sleeping. So just remembering that as well can be really, really helpful. I think that's a nice place to finish our conversation. Dr. Emma Bagnall and uh, Dr. Afif El-Kufash, you've both been wonderful with your time. It's been really enjoyable. I hope that uh, those listening might uh, be able to take one or two of these messages on board and it'll help them in the future. Uh, Guys, thanks for taking the time to talk to us on Health and Fitness. Thanks for having me, David. Thank you very much. Next on Health and Fitness, we talk about the brand new facility in the Midlands that could save your life. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood. Now, for a very long time in this country, there's been talk of decentralisation of important facilities. And uh, one of those that are very much flying that particular flag in the Midlands is the Charter Charter Medical Campus in Mullingar. They have a brand new premier uh, health screening facility, uh, which is added to an already rapidly expanding campus there uh, in Westmeath. I'm very glad to say that uh, Dr. Keith Murray, who's a general practitioner uh, with the screening facility in Mullingar, uh, joins us on Health and Fitness this evening. Uh, Keith, thanks very much for uh, joining us this evening. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Not at all. So I suppose it's important for people listening to understand what it is we're talking about. This health screening facility, it's obvious on one level, but give us a bit more detail as to what goes on. Of course. Yeah. So health screening really is a proactive way of looking at your health. Um, it's presumably aimed at people who... Um, want to get a snapshot of where their current health status is. So we generally see patients who are well, as opposed to someone maybe who is sick, who presents to their own doctor or to the emergency department. Um, Our patients are generally well in the main, but want to know more about their, their current health status, I would say. So the facility is up and running. Um, How are things progressing in terms of everyday workflow? Everything's going smoothly enough at this point, is it? Yeah, it's it's going well. Um, We're up and running now um, the past number of weeks and we've had uh, patients come through and have had good feedback about the service. Um, I think people are delighted to have something like health screening available um, locally in the Midlands Mm. um, rather than having to to travel to Dublin or the major cities to to avail of the service. So um, it's going well so far and um, we're hoping to welcome more patients to the, the service over time. Now, what we're talking about, essentially, it being screening is preventative healthcare and uh, having, for instance, talked to a a GP just a week or two ago on this programme, we were talking about uh, GP utilisation in the country from the Healthy Ireland survey. But one of the things we talked about was maybe how certain demographics in this country aren't very good at preventative healthcare, men in particular. Uh, So this, this is an important part of the picture and it's exactly what we're talking about in that regard. Uh, you might feel fine, but the degree to which you might save yourself hassle down the line is, it, it can't be underestimated that it could be um, a great help to you in future if you did engage with something like this. Absolutely, that's exactly the, the point. Um, 
and you, you referenced uh, men generally, I'd agree, that uh, are less likely to, to come to the doctor. Um, but interestingly, I find in health screening, um, a lot of the patients um, t- tend to be male, actually. Um, I think what the male patients enjoy about the likes of health screening um, is that it's, it's a lot of checks done on the one day. Um, and I think female patients are generally better at going to their, their GP or their doctor and discussing any health concerns they have. Um, and I think, generally speaking, um, men tend to like that a lot of things are done on the, on the one day. And as you mentioned there, it's about being uh, proactive and getting ahead of things like, you know, later risk of heart disease, diabetes, etc., by knowing your, your blood markers and your current, your current health status. Sounds like it's a bit of an NCT. Absolutely. And that, that's the phrase I would often use to describe the service to patients. Um, we all have to do our NCT in our cars every, every few years once they're old enough. And similarly for our, our own bodies, um, an NCT can be good, uh, particularly the, the older we get. So often the, the age demographic of patients we'd see would be generally patients over 40, but we would see patients younger than that also. Um, but it is a good time, I suppose, to be thinking about those long-term health issues um, over the age of 40. Um, and that NCT analogy is, is very good. We're, we're like a, an NCT test for your, yourself. So we provide you with a report at the end of that. And if there are any issues found, you would go back to your mechanic usually, um, i.e. your own doctor, if there's, if there's further investigations or treatment needed afterwards. I can already see why maybe you're getting men to engage with this as things stand. Um, what about the work itself, Keith? I'm curious from a doctor's perspective like yourself, how do you find it compared to other aspects of being a GP? It is, like, is the screening so detailed and advanced that there's no real detective work here? You just look at the scans and look at the results and say that this is the situation. Or as a doctor, is there still a requirement professionally and with, with your intellect to be able to piece together the information to be able to relay to a patient exactly what's going on with them? Absolutely. I'd say, I'd say the latter. There is a piecing together of everything and on the debrief or report that we provide to, to give an explanation um, in simple terms to patients so that they understand any bloods or investigations that, that were abnormal or that needed further further attention. Um, so we would try to link everything together so, so patients understand where, where their current health is. Um, in terms of the work being different from, from other kind of clinic settings, I find the main difference really is a, as a doctor is that I have more time um, to spend with patients and discuss their lifestyle, um, discuss what they can do to improve their health, um, which I understand most doctors would love that luxury to, to have to speak to patients for longer. Um, but the nature of a lot of um, services and clinics is that they're so busy that they can only commit a certain amount of time to the patient. But in, in our clinic, um, patients have up to an hour with the doctor to go through any results that we have on the day and anything later. For example, their blood results will come later and be provided then on their, on their report. You, you must find then patients are appreciative of having that time spent on them and, and, and being given that sense of reassurance that uh, somebody who's got the knowledge and the information and the expertise is on hand to talk them through whatever it is they need to understand and as you said uh, to maybe go back to uh, their typical doctor with 
Absolutely, yeah. And I think uh, reassurance is, is a lot of the um, thing that patients are seeking really by um, doing health screening or, or health checks. Um, sometimes it can be something very simple that they're, they're worried about and even a conversation with the doctor might be able to reassure them even without certain tests or investigations. So uh, the, the chat and the, the time to, to spend with the doctor is probably as valuable as the actual tests and investigations that we do. Okay. Um, anybody listening who thinks that, you know what, it's high time, be it I'm, I'm of a certain age or I'm feeling a certain way, um, they can presumably book uh, appointments online and get in touch with uh, the campus and the um, screening facility that way. You might uh, give us any detail that you might know there in terms of what the best way to go about it is. Absolutely, yes. So if patients want to, to book into the clinic, um, they can do so online. So uh, going to Charter Medical uh, website, um, currently the bookings are taking place uh, through our, our, our Dublin clinic. Um, so patients can and phone the office there or they can go to the website and, and book and see slots directly. Um, hopefully over time we'll add um, that facility to the Mullingar website and the Mullingar um, uh, clinic uh, to be able to take those bookings. But for the current time, if they go to chartermedical.ie, um, they can uh, book online or they can phone the clinic and one of the team will, will book them an appropriate appointment. Okay, that sounds pr- fairly straightforward, Keith. Um, the campus itself then, it's consistently developing from our time uh, here on Health and Fitness. Uh, talking to you guys, there seems to be new facilities and upgrades and updates and development continuing at a decent pace. It, it must be developing a decent footprint in the Midlands now. Absolutely. Um, I'm based there just the last number of weeks myself and I can see um, the activity that's going around, on around campus. I think something like the, the Minor Injuries Clinic is running very well, the Rapid Access Clinic for um, elderly patients as well, and there are more services coming on board all the time. So it's a, a really exciting time to be uh, working in, in the hospital and the clinic there and seeing so many services coming to, to Mullingar and the, the wider Midlands. Well, we're very glad to welcome you to the Midlands, Westmeath and Mullingar, Dr. Keith Murray, who is uh, across and atop of the new health screening facility at the Charter Medical Campus out there in the town. Thanks very much for talking to us on Health and Fitness this evening. Thanks a million, David. Fighting fitness, politics and success. All these things are distilled into our next interview on Midlands 103. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood. Midlands 103. Now imagine you're 15 years old and you're out in Armenia. Uh, the potential for the realisation of a dream to become a world junior champion is on the horizon. And then you draw against a Russian fighter. The question is then, are you permitted to fight that fighter? Uh, John Donoghue had to go uh, through the ringer on this one. Uh, Very gladly, I'm able to say that he managed to politically get around the situation with uh, uh, the help of a few others around him. Uh, Won his fight in very impressive fashion and he's made it all the way to the World Junior Championships final in uh, Armenia, in Yerevan. Uh, John is a fighter out of the Mullingar Olympic Boxing Club. A head coach there is Johnny Joyce. Uh, Johnny, thanks very much for talking to us on Health and Fitness this evening. Uh, Grant, thanks very much for having me on. So tell us, John was in action in the semi-final uh, this uh, this afternoon, or certainly today. You might catch us up on how that went. It sounds like it was a tough one. Yes, it was uh, John's toughest fight. Uh, he had four contests 
in the, in the championship. And today was he's very he was tough. He came up against a two time European champion. Uh just won the Europeans there two months ago. Um Ireland didn't send a team so John didn't get the goal. But uh um John came in today and John won on three scorecards, two scorecards, had a draw. So John won three nil on the scorecards. Very, very tough. Uh it was very scrappy in parts of it. Very the Greek club was very, very tough, kept coming and never and non stop kept coming. John just was the better boxer on the out, on the outside. So delighted to get the win and we were now in the final. Catch us up, Johnny, on what unfolded in the previous round. It's really tricky for Irish boxers at the moment um, in terms of drawing Russian or Belarusian fighters. It looked like uh, his previous bout mightn't go ahead up until the day of the fight. Am I right in saying that? Yes, yeah, you would be. It's just been... This big rule has been going on since the war between uh, the last two years. Between, uh, just since last February, whatever things uh, things haven't been good for Irish boxers. But they haven't, Ireland haven't sent teams away because of politics for some reason that when the kids do get away, they don't get to box the Russians or Belarusians. And if you do, you have to pull out. Uh, I think a couple of days before John boxed, there was a girl on the team and she didn't. She was too over against the Russian and she didn't get the box. Um, so when we we won two fights and John beat an Irani and then he beat the Mongolian and and in the quarters he had to box the Russian. So at that stage, then word on word on was that John was gone. But we Olympic Mullingar, we didn't accept that to be honest because John is just there to box. He's not there for politics. Mm. He's not there to be used for his politics. I'm actually looking at the footage you guys put up on Facebook of that one round victory against the Russian opponent. He looks like a very technically accomplished fighter. John is very, very technical. He he can hit hard. He he can fight in the inside. He had to fight today on the inside. He prefers to fight in the outside and they take things there. But today he can do a bit of both. Like he's very, very talented. He's also very, very heavy handed. He can he can punch. And in terms of the final, then what are your hopes that silver could become gold? Yeah, we 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 fairly confident that John will. Get the goal. Uh, we've watched his opponent today, and we've watched John today, and we've watched John all week, and we know what John can do against certain opponents, and we'd be confident that he'll win. But after today, now he needs to rest and needs to recover and get back focused tomorrow and get in and perform for Sunday. What kind of mentality has he got? He must have something about him to be able to deal with the kind of up and down of of the was he was he not going to fight and then perform very well and then come through a tough fight today. Um, what's his mentality like? Well, he's been brilliant. He's we we put them through a lot of tests through the club to be zombie sparring lots of older guys, younger guys, and bigger lads, and they put them through a lot of tests. You know what I mean? So he's well able to that. But like when he was told he wasn't boxing against the rush, he was fairly down because I I was constantly ringing him and texting him and just making sure that he was okay and keeping his hopes up, saying I'll do my best to get it overturned, John. I'll do my best. The club is doing their best. Everyone is doing their best, and we just kind of kept him going, kept him trying to give him some sort of lead, but. We just kind of at the end we kind of just gave up and we got luck in the end that the Chris Andrews gave us the answers and we got Sherry on the on the radio so it was a bit of luck played a part at the end uh, and he again like he was says he was fairly down and he over well we thought it affected him against the Russian but he sure fairly got in and did the damage in one round. Yet another really talented boxer to come from uh, the Olympic Boxing Club in Mullingar. Johnny, what's your secret in there? Because be it the national championships, underage, uh, world stage tournaments, uh, you guys keep on producing great fighters. 
we've massively this year alone we have a um, a European champion, Louise Joyce, a European silver medalist, who would be John's brother, uh, Jason Donahue. We have a senior elite champion, Jason Evan, just one of their a couple of weeks ago. And we have four other kids that didn't get the chance to box in the Europeans, who won under the Reigns, Patsy Joyce, Neve Kyo, um, Ryan Jenkins, who all won medalists previously in the Europeans. So, uh, yeah, it was just hard work, dedication, and each one of them is driving one around, making sure that everyone keeps getting better as success breeds success is the best way of probably saying it we just keep getting better and keep building on each other uh, what if we have uh, parents listening at home this evening and they're liking what they hear about the, the club and the gym obviously you've got a great track record with young people uh, what should parents do if they want to get their child involved uh, to bring them down to the club I suppose of course yeah we have a, like we we love the kids coming in at beginners classes. I mean, we love them starting them off and actually having you as your own kids. I mean, we bring them through the ranks and we have a beginners class on Monday and Wednesday where there's no contact on. It's a bit of fun, a bit of training, a bit and a bit of a bit of everything. So, like, it's a great sport. It's great for discipline. It's great for uh, every dedication. It's just the kids, great, great meeting friends, great, great, great to get fit and everything else. But no, it's a great sport and Olympic Monagar is there just. We keep breeding this success each year, every time. So hopefully it can continue. I uh, don't doubt that it will. What about for those who are looking to get fit? Um, I know a lot of clubs are really focused on, on the kids and, and the youngsters. Uh, do you provision for adults getting involved as well? There is, yeah. There's a couple, there's, there's a couple of coaches in the club that do the adult class. I'm just the head coach of the kids, to be honest. Uh, yeah. I just love, love training the kids and that's my job, you know, they... I boxed in the Olympics myself and I want to get one of those kids or two or three of them or whatever uh, back to the Olympic Games and change their life with make them dreams come true. That's what drives you, is it, that you're, you're, you, yeah. you know what the feeling is to go to the very top and you want to bring some of those with you? Yeah, that, that's what drives me um, that every day in the club and every year no matter what much success we get. Like, we'll, we'll celebrate John's success when he comes back to his goals by the gold, but fairly after a week or two we will move to the next boxer and we will go to the next tournament and it's for me it's all about the Olympic Games and getting one kid two kids three kids whatever many many I want to go back to the Olympic Games like I left the middle behind just left it behind and I lost an account back 11 all I was 11 seconds away from getting getting that medal but look it's here and there now I want someone to go back and get that medal maybe after that it'll, we'll lose some sort of driving hunger for it after that but I doubt it to be honest I, I love the sport the club loves the sport and I love the kids and the kids are really looking at that aim we want to go back to the Olympic Games and get medals if we can That's the kit and caboodle for this week Joe Cooney's in the house with Country Roads Talk to you soon